Communication in academia has hidden and unwritten rules that present barriers for students. In this episode, we explore inclusive communication strategies we can use as teachers and mentors to help students feel like they belong in the academy. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Christina Ruiz Mesa. She is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at California State University, Los Angeles. Christina previously worked in diversity, equity, and inclusion research at Villanova University and as a communication and diversity consultant. Her research on these topics has been published in a variety of academic journals and in book chapters. Her forthcoming textbook, Inclusive Public Speaking, Communicating in a Diverse World, will be available in late 2020 through Fountainhead Press. We can also note that we just saw Christina on AQ's webinar on preparing an inclusive online course, which was released in early October and is available online. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Welcome, Christina. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Today's teas are... Are you drinking tea, Christina? I am drinking carbonated water. Out of a teacup, I might note. I thought it was appropriate. (laughs) It's a beautiful teacup. Thank you. That's close enough. (laughs) I'm drinking Scottish afternoon tea. And I'm drinking a mix of peppermint and spearmint tea. Lovely. We've invited you here to discuss your work on inclusive communication. First, though, could you tell us how you became interested in this area of research? Absolutely. So the research actually started in my own life more than 30 years ago. And so I grew up in southern New Jersey in a really diverse town in a Caribbean family. And so my dad's Cuban, my mom's Puerto Rican, and lived in this really diverse place. And I went to an inner city Catholic school where I was one of a few students of color and started noticing differences, differences between how our families communicated, how our teachers communicated with our families. And that sparked an interest in me in saying, well, communication seems to not be one size fits all. We all have different ways of communicating. And yet when I was studying communication. And when I was in learning, it was like a one size fits all. Like if you do these communicative practices, you will get the same response. And that was not the case. I didn't find that to be the case. And so I wanted to know how culture, how identities, how intersectional experiences impact the ways that we communicate, the ways that we construct messages, the ways that we analyze our audiences and think about ways that we can train students to most effectively communicate, to how they can most effectively communicate in different audiences, in different places to achieve their personal and professional goals. Colleges and universities have become increasingly diverse and the composition of faculty, though, not so much so. What sort of challenges does this present for communication between faculty and students? I think this is such an important issue and one that we are feeling as faculty as well, is that how can we best serve the needs of all of our students? and recognizing that representation matters in the classroom and that communication matters in the classroom. And so when I think about how do we address mentoring, how do we address teaching, and how do we address the practices that we are using in the classroom? What do our materials look like? And so we can't change our racial identities. We can't change 
who our students are and we wouldn't want to, right? And so how can we make sure that we are teaching all of the students? And so one of the things that I always stress is your course materials. Regardless of subject, you have examples and you have data sets that you use or readings that you're using. And so how are you incorporating more voices, more experiences, more identities into the course? And so that can be a way to really show your students representation if you feel like you are not representing all of the identities of your students, which none of us are. No matter what our identities are, we can never fully represent all of our students. So how can we bring in this idea of polyvocality, lots of different voices, lots of different experiences? And sometimes that means thinking about the data sets that you're using. Are they representative? Who are they speaking about? Who are they speaking to? Who are the scholars that we're bringing into conversations? And so I think these are all ways that we can help address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the classroom and make sure that our students see themselves in the course and see themselves in the materials. And obviously, yes, increasing faculty diversity, staff diversity, making sure that our students feel their experiences and their identities are a part of academia and a part of their institutions. Absolutely. And there are things that we can do immediately in each of our classrooms to make sure that we are making our classrooms as inclusive as possible. I like how you're emphasizing our role or our ability to curate and not just kind of be everything to everybody, but we can curate experiences that include many points of view. I love that you said curate. So I always, when I teach my graduate students, I say, we have like the coolest museum in the world, right? We get to pick all of these scholars and authors and examples and bring them together into one exhibit, whether that exhibit's in a face-to-face classroom in a virtual classroom space, we get to showcase different voices, experiences, theories, and applications. That can enrich the conversation by bringing in a diversity of examples and leveraging that diversity in the classroom to provide a richer learning experience. Absolutely. My mantra for teaching and thinking about teaching and what my course materials are, we always start by planning backwards. What do we want our students to know at the end of this course? What do we want them to remember? And I always think about how can I challenge the canon? So the canon that we all learned in graduate school that we have been reading for decades, some for centuries, this material has been going on. How do we challenge and think about ways to expand that knowledge, ways that we can incorporate new voices? And I think that that's so important. One of the things that I found really wonderful, and I feel like it's actually happening more right now because we're trying extra hard to include students in conversations and make them feel included in a virtual environment to allow them to co-curate with us and to pick sources and to share materials. And my reading list got really long this semester. is based on all the things that students have brought to the table, podcasts that they've introduced me to, videos that they've introduced me to. I have a long list of homework to do. Absolutely. And I love that, right? I love that idea of, okay, we're co-learners here and there's such a reach. And Rebecca, I love that you say that with podcasts and my students have introduced me to so many artists and performers and theorists that I was like, okay, yes. And they're seeing it in social media. They're seeing up and coming scholars whose work perhaps hasn't come out in those big journals yet, but that they are releasing blogs, they're doing podcasts. And I love the perspectives and identities and experiences and new knowledge that's being incorporated through these venues and avenues. Let's go back to the mismatch between the diversity of the faculty and the more diverse student body that we're finally getting in most colleges and universities now. What's the impact of that, say, on persistence rates for first-gen students and students from underrepresented groups? Absolutely. So the research has consistently shown us that mentoring and inclusive pedagogical practices matter. 
I teach in East Los Angeles. And so as a Latina scholar teaching a predominantly Latino student population as the only tenured or tenure track faculty who is Latino, who is Spanish speaking, who can connect with families at graduation and at different ceremonies, I find that I have a very easy time connecting with my students and their experiences, even though our families are from different Latin American countries. I grew up on the East Coast, not the West Coast. I'm Caribbean. And so like all of these differences are still under this umbrella of, I think about like cultural norms and I think about cultural values. And one of them that I stress in my teaching is this idea of familismo, this cultural commitment to family and the family role. And I think about how that influences student persistence. And we're seeing it very clearly now on our campus. So my role at Cal State LA is that I'm an associate professor, but I'm also the director of oral communication in communication, which means we have 4,000 students taking a standardized general education oral communication course. And so my instructors see 4,000 incoming freshmen every year. And we are hearing consistently this semester that workloads combined with having your classroom now be your living space with your families, how do we negotiate? How do we navigate these spaces? And that is absolutely going to impact persistence and graduation rates. And so I think for faculty, understanding not only how your students are coming in, what knowledge they are coming in with, but understanding the cultural context in which they are living and how that may be impacting the learning experience, the needs of the students in terms of, I always think about applied skills. I teach communication. And so when I came into Cal State LA, one of the first things I did was say, how can we get an interview assignment into oral communication? It's not part of the general education requirements of the state. And so I went to the chancellor's office and I said, here's my pitch. 80% of our students are first gen. We know that interviewing skills, so much of it is based on these unwritten rules and laws that you learn kind of through family, through friends. But if you're your first person in your family who's gone to college, you might not get those experiences kind of organically. And so we needed to embed it into the general education requirement so that all students benefit from it. And again, the universal design we're talking about, no one's going to be disadvantaged from learning interviewing skills and practicing interviewing. And so I think thinking about persistence in really applied ways and material realities matter. How are we going to get students to get those internships, to get those jobs? And so thinking about how our skills can be taught in a way that is problem posing and that can be applied to students' lives as soon as possible. What I like about what you're talking about in terms of the oral communication piece is that it's such a big part of being professional in every discipline, but we often teach public speaking classes as if it's a very separate activity. (laughs) Like, I'm going to stand up and give speeches. I don't stand up and give speeches. (laughs) And most people don't. The kind of communication you do is different. So putting it in context like that and providing a clear application of how those skills can be used somewhere, I think is really helpful, especially for students that don't have that kind of context to build from. I totally agree. And you mentioned some of the challenges associated with students interacting with families in their homes. One of the issues that faculty keep raising is our students won't turn on their cameras. And we address that regularly with faculty, but it's an issue where faculty are used to seeing faces on the screen, and they're really upset when people choose not to. How do you respond to that? This is something that I have been hearing in my circles as well. And well-meaning faculty are frustrated because we know that a large percentage of our communication is nonverbal. So if we are missing those nonverbal cues of understanding, of confusion, it is limiting our ability to be able to connect with our students that way. I get that. And the hard truth is that it's not about us. And so that's one of those tough kind of answers because right now it's about our students and their success. 
and whatever we need to do, whatever practices that we need to kind of adapt to, it's about them and about their learning. And so one of the things that I have done is incorporate more of the thumbs up, thumbs down, type in the chat so you can do a popcorn response by giving an emoji. So offering students various ways of interacting, I think is huge. Also normalizing the ways that we communicate. So for speech, for example, we do want to see them in terms of their nonverbals. We want to see your gesturing. We want to see the ways that you're connecting. And so we normalized giving speeches in bathtubs, giving them from parking lots, giving them in cars, doing our own mini lectures from like on the floor in the bathroom, because if we're doing it, then you can do it. And so kind of modeling that it's okay and that we don't all have these perfect offices that look like they came off of HGTV and that there might be a dog barking in the background or someone crying. And that's okay. This is a global pandemic. There are more important things than whether you can hear a baby crying or a dog barking or someone in the background. And so I think also being realistic about our expectations and as empathetic as we can. And one of the things that I often think about is that many of us teaching at the college level, we're in the top 5%, top 2% of higher education attainment. How we learned and our experiences and how we are now, we have to remember. We have to remember what was it like to be an undergrad. And for many of us, that meant where were we studying? How could we study? If you don't have the privilege of going to a library right now or a quiet space, then being empathetic enough to know that you don't understand all of the experiences and lives of your students and give them the benefit of the doubt that they are trying their best and they're doing the best we can, all of us. One of the things I ask my students is to share some of their challenges in a low stakes discussion forum. And I've been amazed at how many students talk about just how difficult it is to find time that's quiet. They may have a spouse or a partner who's playing a lot of video games, or more typically, they may have small children or they may have siblings in the rooms or in the dwellings with them. And that makes it very challenging where some of them saying, I wake up at six in the morning just so I can find some quiet time in order to do my work, or I have to wait until everyone's asleep after midnight or at one in the morning. And it's something I think we do need to be a little more cognizant of. And even just asking them what sort of challenges they face perhaps can help faculty adjust to this somewhat challenging environment we're all in. Are you sure those are students talking? Because I feel like you just described what I'm doing. <laughs> faculty have had very similar challenges since last March. I do think actually the struggles that faculty are having with family and things being in the same space as them has actually really, really helped start to connect to some of the real challenges that students face regularly and not just during a pandemic. Absolutely. And then we compound that with housing insecurity, food insecurity, and the things that our students are experiencing. Just every time my students come into my class, I thank them. That's the first thing I do. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm excited to have our conversation. And I think that goes a long way. And at the end of every class, acknowledging that and say, I know that you've got a lot going on and I am really proud of you. And I think that that transparency of saying, this is why I need you to do this assignment. This is why I gave you three readings instead of two. And I think really explaining the why is going even further than it has in the past. And so thinking about the ways that we can make our assignments and our assessments as practical and applied as possible, really helpful right now, as well as checking in with students. I've been doing the first kind of 10 minutes of class checking in. Now, I know that's not possible for all classes and for all students and for every class, but when it is and when we can or a discussion post, tell me the best thing that's going on in your week. Just connecting and having those connections in the classroom, I think is really important now for maintaining not only community and engagement, but also persistence. Given the challenges you've mentioned with communications between faculty and students, one of the issues that may come up is microaggressions. And I know you've done some research on that. Could you tell us a little bit about your research on microaggressions in the classroom? Sure. 
I did a study on microaggressions at a predominantly white institution of higher education and looking at racial microaggressions that students of color were experiencing on campus. And so just as a quick recap, Wing Su defines microaggressions as kind of brief, commonplace, verbal, behavior, or environmental indignities, and they can be intentional or unintentional, and they communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults. But microaggressions can be about sexuality, about social class, about gender, so they can be across identities. And my research showed that African-American males and Latino males experienced microaggressions at the highest rates of any students. And the experiences oftentimes led to what we'd call student misbehaviors in the classroom. If students were feeling disrespected by an instructor or by other peers, there was a few paths that they would take. One is they would act out in the class. So they might say things, they might be seemingly disrespectful about the material, about the course. They would drop out and you would never hear from them again. You wouldn't know why they weren't engaging in the class. They were just gone. And we also saw psychological stressors. So higher instances of isolation, feelings that they didn't belong on campus. And again, this was a predominantly white institution. And so students of color have these feelings of belonging, questioning of belonging. And so when they experienced microaggressions, these feelings were exacerbated and they increased experiences of anxiety, depression, and social isolation. What my research found was that if we could inoculate against microaggressions by offering micro practices and services on campus, that was where we were able to support students in building academic habits that would help support their success. And so this inoculation came in the form of having diversity, equity, and inclusion centers, having counseling resources, having safe spaces and inclusive and brave spaces where students could share their experiences so that it wasn't just one person saying, it must be me. It's something I'm doing. But recognizing that these were structural and systemic and these were problems that were permeating throughout the campus. And so that was something that we found in the research was that primarily African-American males and Latino males were experiencing this more often on campus and that the ways to minimize the academic impact was to offer services early and often. Having male mentoring groups on campus was helpful and having spaces where students could share their counter narratives and counter experiences on campus all were beneficial. That's a useful form of remediation, but what can be done perhaps in the classroom to address those as they occur? Absolutely. That is my number one piece of advice for faculty is when you see something, when you're like hairs in your back of your neck, you're standing up, you're like, oh, this isn't good. You need to say something. And that is something that is scary. And for many of us, particularly folks who are not tenured, who are contingent faculty, who are hired by the quarter or semester, that can be really scary because we know that student evaluations matter. Having grievances can affect your job. And so that, and I'm in a privileged position. I'm a tenured state university professor, so I recognize that. And I think that it's important that if we are going to have inclusive conversations, inclusive learning environments, we have to intervene. Now, knowing how to intervene takes practice. And knowing that you're not going to get it right every time is humbling. And knowing that we're always learning. And that's one of the things that I always stress to faculty is that we are literally trained for this. We are trained to learn. That is our job. Our job is to learn as much as we can, figure out new, innovative, cool ways to apply it, explain it, expand it. That's the gig. And so this is another area of knowledge that we need to learn, that we need to just say, okay, I needed to learn a new computer system. I needed to learn how to teach online. I need to learn what my students are experiencing so that I can be a better teacher, so that I can learn what has already worked, what practices are embedded. And so one of the things that I've done in the last few years and that I found to be helpful is to write down what are the specific practices, not just saying you need to be an inclusive educator. Cool. What does that mean? And what does that look like in my classroom? 
And so one of my most cited articles is this quick best practices piece that I can share the link with. It's a free download. And it's 10 best practices for facilitating difficult dialogues. And it's tips, for example, like we disagree with ideas, not people. So we focus on the idea, not the person. The other is maintaining immediacy. So making sure that we're talking at the end of class, you don't leave conversations undone or unsaid. So keeping track of time and recognizing that you might need two or three minutes at the end of class to do relationship repair, to do community check-ins, to do that repair, really important. Also making sure our language is inclusive. So thinking about the ways that we, from day one, are establishing inclusive language. Are we getting rid of kind of gender binaries and making assumptions about student genders? Are we asking students, what is your name? I never read out of rosters. I always have students introduce themselves. Tell me your name, share your pronouns with me, and modeling that for students. I also include a pronunciation guide because much like we want our students' names to be honored, we want our names to be honored and said correctly. So offering tools and resources and normalizing this in communication, whether you're teaching comm, psychology, math, chemistry, normalizing that this is how effective communication works. And I think that's really helpful in the classroom. And of course, setting the ground rules, setting the tone, the things that we know as faculty that we ought to do. But those are some of the big ones. And also the oops and the ouch rule is something that we use a lot and saying that, again, in a single 50-minute, hour and 15-minute class, I'm going to say thousands of words. The chances that one or two of them are wrong or came out too quickly or I didn't mean to say that, likely. So recognizing and having the humility to say, okay, if I'm going to say an oops, that was my bad. Let's start over. Let's take that again. And recognizing that if I miss something, having a mechanism in place with the ouch to say, that was hurtful. I didn't appreciate that. Can we talk about that for a second? And pausing and saying, I'm sorry, how was that hurtful? I'm sorry, and acknowledging the moment. And I think these are practical things that can feel super awkward if we don't establish them on day one. But if it's just how things are, the beauty of being a college professor is that every 10 weeks, 16 weeks, quarter semester, we get to start over. And so reestablish the norms, reestablish how we communicate and how we want to communicate for an inclusive environment. If you think of it that way, we get so many do-overs. Exactly. Eventually, we'll get things right. I'm still waiting. That's empowering. (laughs) Yeah. I really love the idea of the oops and the ouch and really establishing the idea and reminding ourselves that we're learners too and we make mistakes and it does take practice. But just like we want our students to take that first try, we have to do it too. Boy, we should listen to ourselves sometimes. Right? Once in a while. (laughs) Would you recommend that perhaps when you have those rules, you give students some say in discussing them and establishing the ground rules? Absolutely. I usually have a few rules that I propose and then I ask students to add to them and we do a Google Doc in class and they can add them in real time. And then I also say from now until next week, review them. If something doesn't feel right, if you want further explanation, let's write it out and let's talk about it and see how we can come to this together. One of the things that I really recognize teaching more online than in person is how much more time there really should be to do some of those things at the beginning of the semester in any semester, but I took the time this semester and it was really helpful. Love that. That is one of the benefits of teaching online is that I feel like if I miss something, I can make a video. There's time to kind of fix it. Whereas in face-to-face, I can send an email, but it's not the same. Whereas if everything is built into my learning management system, it's another opportunity. So we talked a little bit about privilege and how that might impact the kind of experiences you have access to. And one thing that I think we don't always consider is how our own race, gender, social status, and ability status impact our own social norms. And we don't necessarily recognize them as being social norms or that somehow we learned these behaviors. 
what are some things that we could think about as faculty to better understand what those practices are and to undo some of them maybe, or at least recognize that they're norms and invite students in to understand that? One of the kind of keys for me is when I hear the word ought, like it ought to be this way or it ought to be. And I'm like, hmm, says who? A really important part of being a good teacher is recognizing that we cannot be all things to all people and that we have to be critically self-reflexive. I read a lot of Bell Hooks work and think about the ways that Hooks asks us to be kind of these self-actualized beings. How do we model the vulnerability and the space? And again, I recognize I teach communication. I'm a humanities professor. I have kind of more flexibility than my spouse who teaches chemistry. And so this idea that it's going to look different in different classrooms, absolutely. And thinking about the ways that we come up with examples, I think, is a way that reflects our own identities. And so one of the ways that I think about that is psychological noise. And so am I giving an example that is helping students move along in their understanding of a concept? Or have I just put up a giant roadblock because I used an example that's not clear? And now they're thinking about the example and they've forgotten the concept. So recognizing which examples are from a privileged experience. If you're giving an example and you're like, so let's say you're in Paris eating a croissant and you're like, cool, I saw Emily in Paris. Does that count? That was a good show. And now they're starting to think about a tangent and they forgot what you're teaching. And so thinking about the ways that our examples can demonstrate our own privileges and recognizing that talking about more privileged experiences, like I was thinking about this the other day when students were talking about having to go to the grocery store. And I was thinking about how many people in my circle were like, groceries have been delivered since March. And the privilege that that reflects about saying, oh no, I've been perfect. I have not had to leave my house. That's a privilege. And recognizing that we have paid positions, we still have jobs. And so recognizing that how our examples are privileged, I think is really important for all of us. And I find the longer that I'm teaching, the more I have to kind of check myself, the more I have to say, is this a universal or pretty broad experience? Is this example resonating? Is this, as my students would say, is that just really bougie? Like, is this just a really privileged, expensive thing? And I'm like, you caught me. And I think being humble enough to recognize what our own racial, financial, gendered positions are and how our experiences may be tied to those identities and experiences and how that may differ from our students. So I think that's something Examples are one way that I think are really something we can all work on. The other is the ways that we make assumptions about what students ought to know. I'm big on saying that we don't have underprepared students. We have underprepared teachers because our students are who our students are on day one. And that's where we teach them from. What they know is what we know and we'll build. And I'm very big on understanding that it is my obligation in these 16 weeks to teach them as much as I can. But I have to start where they are. And that's my job. And if it means that I have to go back in week one and stay up till midnight redoing my course schedule, so be it. That's my job to make sure that my students are learning and recognizing that where I think they ought to be doesn't matter. It's where they are that matters. And that's our starting place. So the way we prevent too much workload at the beginning is we just don't plan the like last five weeks of the semester so that if you need to add stuff in the beginning, you can just shift everything. I have my syllabus and it has the first five weeks. And I always say tentative at the top. And I say, this is going to serve the needs of our students and we'll adjust. And I think, Rebecca, you hit the nail on the head. Yes, being flexible and adapting and saying, if we need to take two weeks on this, but you learn it, that's more important to me than just kind of checking off my boxes like, oh, good, we're in week eight now or week nine. Absolutely. I had a conversation with my students this week about projects that they were working on and they were getting frustrated because they weren't being as productive as maybe they would be in a non-pandemic situation. Imagine that. 
Right. And so they're like, but I don't know how I'm going to get it done. It's like, well, because you're being unreasonable. Let's take that back a couple notches. The thing you're talking about, that's your next revision. That's next time. That's not this time. And I think having those conversations with students about kind of a reality check of what's even reasonable right now is helpful because there are these norms of what maybe a normal semester is like. That's just unrealistic. And maybe it's unrealistic all the time. Absolutely. And I think for ourselves too, as faculty, I mean, I have found myself, I don't know about you all, but I'm working seven days a week. And I'm like, this is not healthy. This is not sustainable. And I'm telling my students, and I'm really open with them. I teach mostly graduate students, but I'm really open with them saying, please do as I say and not as I do, because I'm still learning and I'm still a work in progress and I'm still trying. But I don't want them to fall into the same patterns that I'm falling into where it's midnight and we're still working and it's all the time. And I think that that leads to burnout. And I know I have been meeting with many more students than in a typical semester. And it's more one-on-one meetings. And I appreciate that. And I value our time together. And I also am recognizing that I'm making appointments like from seven, eight in the morning all the way until late at night. And so our days are kind of blending. And I think that that's really stressful. And my colleagues who have young children, I feel for them because they are just working nonstop. And I think we have to be kind to ourselves. We have to show ourselves and our students and our colleagues grace. And to say, Rebecca, I think as you say, this is a pandemic world. So let's all chill with our expectations here. And I think along those lines, emphasizing still how much learning is actually happening. Yes. Because what I've discovered is not that students are learning any less. They might be producing less work, but the quality is actually quite good. Absolutely. And they're demonstrating that they're meeting the learning objectives. It's just maybe there's some things there that didn't need to be there. And I don't know if you all are seeing this, but I'm finding there's like a decentering of faculty because I'm not lecturing for three hours in a graduate class. I'm, again, curating materials, making mini lectures, and then using our time together when we have synchronous time for discussion. And so I'm finding it to be really enriching. Our conversations are great. The chat, students who I have not heard from in previous semesters are now super engaged and participating because they feel more comfortable. Perhaps there's communication apprehension and they didn't want to speak up in front of everyone, but they can chat and they can type in the chat. And that is another avenue. So I think we're also seeing opportunities for further engagement and students really taking on the ownership of saying, I need to do the reading because I'm not going to get a three-hour lecture. And so I can't depend on that. I have to depend on myself. And I think we're going to see on the other end of this, perhaps stronger practices of self-efficacy and engagement. I had a whole class of people who read their stuff today. It was amazing. amazing. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Love it. I haven't quite gotten there with everyone, but I have somewhat larger classes too. But yeah, some of the things that we've been doing in terms of having people have the chat capability as a back channel has been really enriching. And I'm hoping that that becomes more widely adopted later. And also the move to online discussion forums also gives more students a voice than would occur with synchronous communications. Because there's always some people who want to think and process things a little bit more before they jump out there and say something. And I think in that way, at least, we've moved to somewhat more inclusive environments. In many ways, we haven't. But at least that's one area that I think can be useful moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that, John, exactly to your point, I think that we are creating some more opportunities for engagement. And I see the big barrier as getting folks in the classes. So making sure they have the Wi-Fi, making sure they have 
a device. I think that's the big challenge at the beginning of the semester. And so thinking about planning for next semester, for many of us who already know that we are going to stay remote, is thinking about how those first two weeks can be really flexible because it might take students a while to get access after the holidays and after the new year. Depending what happens with the election and different things that are happening, they might need a little bit more time to get their financial aid checks. And so thinking about how those first few weeks can be caught up, I think is going to be really important for the spring. I think that's a nice lead into how we normally wrap up, which is what's next? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, no. <laughs> that's it. That's all there is. <laughs> Who knows? What's interesting to me is when I think about the possibilities for higher education, I think this is really exciting. So when I think about the different, you know, since 1636 and Harvard's founding, we have seen really slow change in higher education. And all of this slow change was laughed at in March when they're like, guess what? We are going from moving the battleship to like a jet ski right now. We are going fast and we are hoping for the best. And so I think we're going to see some rapid and lasting changes in U.S. higher education that would have taken decades had there not been a pandemic. And so my hope is that we are going to increase hybrid offerings. We're going to increase our capabilities of serving more students by offering more online options. And my hope is that institutions will respond by creating tenured and tenure track lines for online, totally online programs and teachings. And we've got more than 3,000 institutions of higher education in this country that we can really create more access and engagement and higher education achievement in this country. That's my hope for what's next. I think ending on a hopeful note is a good thing. (laughs) It's a time when we need a lot of hope. Certainly. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christina. You've given us lots to think about and actions to actually take. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. This was super fun. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed our conversation. We have too. And we hope we'll be talking to you again in the future. Anytime. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, Join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.